And he picks up the book and throws it at me. Honestly. <laughs> and Norma was going, Norman, now come on. And yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? And Norma looked at me and, and, and said, Norman, tell him what he's supposed to get. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. That was Jack Dennis describing an interesting encounter with a river runs through it, Norman McLean. This is a big one today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Uh, if you get a chance, head over to wetflyswing.com slash live. That's L-I-V-E to check out the next live podcast where we have going here. We're testing out some of these new live shows on, uh, on Clubhouse right now. Uh, so check it out. Head over there and uh, check in and send me a message if you need a little invite to get in there. Jack Dennis, a big time... A uh, player in the history of fly fishing in the U.S., uh, a Team USA coach, author of one of the all-time greatest selling fly tying books, and all-around fly fishing superstar is here to share his super, super famous story. We hear about his connection to Ted Williams, uh, John Wooden, Jimmy Stewart, and many other big-time people along the way who have made a connection uh, to uh, fly fishing and to the world. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. TurtleBox is the loudest, truly portable, waterproof Bluetooth speaker available. We believe in respecting the peace and beauty while on the water, but listening to great tunes before or after can be amazing. Why not fire up this podcast or a little music after a big day on the water? Head over to wetflyswing.com slash turtlebox to get started today. Sawyer offers a full line of modern and traditional products for oarsmen, canoeists, kayakers, and paddlers from all genres, providing unsurpassed function, performance, and beauty. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Sawyer to grab your set today. That's Sawyer, S-A-W-Y-E-R, to get started right now. I really think you're going to love this one today. So without further ado, here is Jack Dennis. How's it going, Jack? It is a beautiful day here in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love that you you're can't in... see me, but I've got Carolina blue on right now. <laughs> I, I, I love I got it. To church in Chapel Hill, and uh, in, in this town, you wear light blue. Yes, yes, I I know light blue, and we're going to talk probably if we have time today about it later because I'm a huge. Uh, I've always been a big basketball fan. Michael Jordan was my hero back when I was a kid, and and I know yes. I know the North Carolina days very well. So is it still Michael Jordan? Is it still, does it still revolve around Michael Jordan there? Uh, yeah. You know, he's got a statue and all that stuff, but let me tell you my, uh, something you may not know that a Wyoming boy invented the jump shot and it was in the hall of fame. And I got to play against him when I was 18 years old and it, and, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's famous. Uh, uh, you can look it up. And the reason he did the jump shot is because his brother was bigger than him. <laughs> and, uh, in the, anyway, let's, uh, basketball is like, you, you know, yeah, 
Well, I think I think what we're gonna have to do with this, Jack, is well, we'll have to see what you think. But I, I just know that there's no way we're gonna even touch the surface. So we might, if if we go well, maybe we can get you back on for another one to do a second half of this if we run out of time. Because um, I love basketball. My dad played for uh, in college ball, and ever since then, I've been kind of addicted to it. But um, but let, let's let's talk fly fishing. Just let's take us back, yeah. take us back, because you've done every, you've pretty much done it all. You've you know, you know everybody. You've been with some of the most famous people in the world and all that stuff. So we'll we'll dig into a little bit. Just tell me how you how you first got into fly fishing. Oh, it's really simple. My grandfather took me up to Lewis Lake. My I was lucky that my grandfather had a ranch he invested in. My family came to Jackson Hole as Philadelphians, buying and uh, hiring people to be uh, <laughs> homesteaders. Nice. That was common among the wealthy people of the East to go to the West, hire a person, give them a job. And then uh, when they came homestead, you know, you got so many acres, 200 acres, I think, back there, and they built ranches that way. Uh, and my my family came there. My grandfather uh, invested in that, so he would come back. I uh, accidentally got born in Jackson. I was supposed to be born in uh, Long Beach. My father was flying for, uh, he was a pilot for the movie companies uh, for uh, 20th Century Fox. And uh, he flew uh, Ernest Hemingway and Gary Cooper to Jackson. And uh, Hemingway, and I confirmed this with Jack Hemingway. He even remembers the trips and had pictures of it. They went into Hart Lake. And if anybody knows the West, uh, you have to hike seven, eight miles into Hart Lake with grizzly bears around. And you could drive in it in those days. And my father couldn't, in those days, the pilot didn't go with him, even though he was friends with him. And he met my grandfather, took him home to meet his daughter. And they lived in California in the wintertime, the Philippine Islands. I mean, the Philippine Islands in the winter and the summer in Jackson. But they also had a place in California. But long story short, my father went back for a hunting trip. I got born in Jackson. There you go. And my grandfather took me to Lewis Lake, trolled a trolled a, a woolly worm and I caught my first fish, never saw it. He'd say, real, don't reel, real, don't reel. And then I saw this big brown trout and I was hooked forever. Yeah. That's awesome. I, um, like I mentioned, we've had a number of, uh, people that have had some pretty huge mentors and I know you've mentored a lot of people. We've had, you know, folks like Jeff Courier and people around, you know, the fly fishing space that are big influences that have have mentioned you as well. But, you know, when you look back on your whole life, you got your grandfather. I mean, is there one person or a couple people that really stick out that impacted you from the fly fishing space? Oh, well, there's several, but the number one, one is came my second father was uh, sports announcer, Kurt Gowdy. Yeah. Yeah. Kurt Gowdy, I have heard his name. I, I don't know the whole history. I know, I mean, obviously, right, the TV show is a big thing. Can you just tell us a brief little snippet on, on why that uh, you know, what, what made that, uh, him such a great mentor? Well, first of all, I met him trying to, I was going to be a basketball announcer. I did college games when I was in college, small college just happened to, uh, end up winning the national collegiate championship. Four guys on the team went to colleges. Two guys went to the NBA ones in the hall of fame. And I was the play-by-play, so I thought, hey, I can get a job. I'm not, I'm ha- I was in the reserves. I'd gone to military service for two years. I needed to stay next to Wyoming. And so I interviewed with Kurt Gowdy for a job in one of his radio stations. He made more, made a lot of money on buying radio stations. Oh, okay. 
and uh, he, he was a very good businessman. Uh, but he's the only announcer. He's probably the great, uh, and I've, I've visited all of his, uh, he's in uh, all the, I think, six Hall of Fames, including baseball. But he was, in one year, he did the Super Bowl, uh, the Bing Crosby tournament. He did the NBA championships. He did the World Series. He did the Super wow. Bowl. Wow. And he worked for three different networks. And then he started the American Sportsman. A actually, American Sportsman uh, was was started, and uh, uh, the guy that was doing it became the NFA, the NFL commissioner. And so uh, Kurt was given the job, and he did fabulous with it. It lasted for a long time. Yeah. And in 1968, he invited me on the show. I was only 21 years old, and we did a show which turned out to be the number one viewed show uh, on uh, on it, on uh, American sports wow. in the 20-year history. But we, we had a very close relationship. We fished together. Yeah, we started the – he really kind of started the idea of the one fly. Uh, Lee Wolf, his pal, had written an article in Outdoor Life about if you only had one fly, what would it be? And – Kirk picked the muddler minnow. Amazingly enough, uh, Lee Wolf picked my Royal Humpy, which was on my first book. Uh -huh. And uh, he just thought it. He, he was a dry fly man. People don't realize. He said, if we can't get him up to a dry, to hell with it. Now, <laughs> I know yours is a wet fly thing, but uh, he he was actually known to use nymphs, and I was with him when he and Joan used nymphs under an indicator. But, you know, the eastern, the eastern jonda in the 60s started heading towards dry flies yeah, yeah. before dry flies were you know hackle wasn't that good it, yeah. i mean this is as big a science fly fishing is hard really hard and to be really good at it the mike lawson's the randall coffins i'm telling you i have all my kids are either medical doctors or phds and i'll tell you to know fly fishing in and out when you get to that point, you have not one but three PhDs. Yeah. And I can tell you, Mike Lawson is a prime example of somebody who wrote a book, and Gary LaFontaine, all were people that were so brilliant, and they're just right up, but it doesn't mean anything. It's not that important. Right. It, as I have one doctor say, you're not saving anybody's lives. Well, then Project Healing Waters came around. And we started saving that's right. soldier lives. So, you know, there we are. Yeah. I think that's the power of, of the fly fishing spaces that obviously we all love it because it's fly fishing and stuff. But, and you've noted this, I think the one fly, right? I mean, you know, conservation is a, is a huge backdrop. You know, people, most people that get into fly fishing eventually really get into conservation as well, or at least, you know, support it. And right. I mean, that's a big part of, uh, do you feel like that's a big contribution that uh, fly fishing gives to the world? Well, I think it, you know, it's highly educated. The person that, that gets into it, uh, usually if you look at the, the type of people that have been in it from presidents to, uh, uh, to some of the most famous writers, uh, it, it, it's intelligent and it's intelligent to, con to, to be a conservationist. And what we started the one fly was Kurt's idea because he had been in the one shot antelope hunt. And so 
you imagine this is 1973. We're going down the river. The number one voice in the country is announcing a contest between Jack Dennis and Kurt Gowdy. And Kurt had a wonderful singing voice. He could sing the national anthem. He could sing everything. And we, it was like two boys playing. And we were, we, we, he'd say, well, Dennis makes a cast over there, a little bit short. Gowdy's coming back, though. <laughs> and and I said, Howard, he'd go to Howard. How, he do, He was great friends with Howard Cosell. Oh, wow. And, and he'd go back and he'd go, well, Howard, what do you think? And he'd imitate Howard's voice. And, and uh, all the, uh, and we, we got done, I'd beat him. Rowing into the landing, I caught a fish in the middle of the river, and he never, ever got over that. He was a competitor. He was on uh, the Wyoming uh, team that won the national championship, the only time they ever did in basketball. And uh, so he, huh. was, he was definitely one of those competitors in fishing. And, you know, the, the first guy says, hey, I'll tenor on the big fish, you know, yeah, that, that type of thing. Yeah. The competitiveness. And, you know, that led to quite a bit for me. I started doing the, N, uh, the NCAA coaches clinics to teach them fly fishing to kind of lower the stress level. Huh. And Bobby Knight and oh, yeah. Denny Crum and, and, and some of the ones that are still on it took the class. Denny Crum was the most natural caster that I've ever, ever had. Within one lesson, he was casting 80 feet. And he says, I love this fly fishing. Who did he coach? I can't remember. Denny Crum. I At remember. Louisville. Oh, Louisville. And then, yeah, that's right. And then, of course, then Bobby. He was a, yeah. He, play, he, was a, he played he was from Los Angeles. He played uh, uh, for uh, for Wooden. Oh, wow. And then coached under Wooden. Oh, that's, that explains it. And he had wonderful stories. And, and we still, uh, he's about 82, three. He's had a couple strokes. He, yeah. I got him coming to Jackson, and he met Mike Lawson, and they he bought uh, bought a place on Henry's Lake, and we we used to fish the canyon. He was a big card player, poker. Yeah. And we go to the room. He says, "Let me get on the computer, and I'll pay for the trip." <laughs> he come out. Here's one eight hundred dollars. Let's go. Nice. Yeah, and uh, uh, we, we just had some wonderful times together. And then he and Bobby Knight and Gary Cunningham all students of wooden gave me in a ceremony as a ceremony of the of the uh, pyramid of success where he signs it and gives you a little note and uh, and it means that you understand the values of coaching and what people don't realize he won nine national championships which nobody's ever done uh, and many in a row and he never once once ever told any of his players to win. No nope. practice. He told them to play as best. And if you don't make mistakes, you're not going to be a good player. And he didn't believe in the individual player. He believed in it as a team. Okay. Anyway, that's what basketball is the same kind of discipline. At play. No, I love it. I, I love it. And I'll make note. You mentioned uh, Mike Lawson. Uh, we had him on the podcast recently. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. And um, yeah, Mike is, uh, well, gosh, we've known her since the early seventies. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mike, Mike was great. It was great to talk to him. Uh, and then wooden, I just want to touch on that quickly because I think it does yeah. apply, right? Because John wooden, I can't think of a bigger 
person who I'd love to learn, you know, who I'd love to have as my coach. But, you know, what could somebody take? Listen to this. If they're fly fishing, they, they're trying to get better at fly fishing. What what did Lo- uh, Wooden teach that we might take away from that? Well, I think uh, I have a better teacher for fly fishing than Wooden. Wooden is a team guy. Yeah. Even though, uh, let me just say this about Wooden. One of the most important thing about Wooden is that you did everything, you know, as a team. But, uh, you know, w- one of the things was don't be afraid to fail. Yeah. And, and that and fly fishing important. But I, I think uh, more than anything, Ted Williams probably said the best about how you get good. Yeah. And I was lucky to be with him when Kirk Gowdy did the National Sporting Goods Association meeting, it used to be a big thing. All the sporting goods dealers went to Chicago. This was 1977, and he wanted to learn how to tie flies. So Kurt set it up. We were in a hotel together, and and I taught him how to tie flies. He, he had owned a business called Worldwide Sportsman with another guy by the name of Billy Pate and George Hommel, and it was a guiding operation, a small operation, and he wanted to learn how to tie saltwater flies. Uh, he, he had a lot of money from Sears endorsements, but he was sort of cheap. <laughs> he didn't want to have to buy flies. They wanted to learn to tie them. Yep. And so, but anyway, we, we, uh, the important thing I learned from him is, how do you, I said, how do you get great? And, and it all started out with this. My father was a pilot for the Kansas City Athletics in the late 50s. And uh, I went to his last game in 59 at KC Stadium. And it was the last time he was going to play there. And he was, I, my father had to get there because the owner wanted him there early in case he had to fly somebody out. for. He didn't trust anybody in Kansas City, which is why he moved to Oakland uh, with the athletic. Uh, so he'd fly him to Chicago where he was from. So dad had to be there early. Here Ted Williams was, was out there. With, with a bucket of balls, a guy was throwing it to him, and he was hitting him over the fence, and I counted it 13 in a row. Jeez. So I told him about that. Oh, he says, that, that's a game we used to play. So I, my best was 19 in a row. I always wanted to get to 21 or something about 21. Uh, wow. And I said, well, you know, Ted, come on. That's crazy. You know, he's just lobbing you the balls in there. He says, no, he's not. I pay him $5 for every ball he throws by me. Now, $5 in 1959, like a $100 bill. So uh, but he said, here's what you do. You practice, practice until you're tired of practice, and you practice some more. Until it becomes automatic and you can think of the prettiest girl in your life, or if you're a woman, the prettiest guy, or whatever anymore. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but you could think... Of whatever you're doing, and it all comes automatic. Yeah. And 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 I think the most important thing you can learn is to try to fish harder waters, like basketball. Play a better team. You learn how you learn from somebody better. But number one is observation. I was just giving a casting lesson. My wife said, "You know what? Watch your husband." He said, "See how he does it." And she says, "Yeah." So that's how I learned to cast my. My husband couldn't tell me anything. I learned by watching him. Mm-hmm. So I think observation, the casting is the key to everything. Hmm. You can read all the books. You can learn all the techniques. If you can't deliver, that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it, it, it's, it's about casting. 
Sorry. Now you can fish little small streams or cast. You're not going to have to do a roll cast, and and you can get pretty pretty good at that. It's sort of like being a pretty good uh, little league player than a pretty good high school player. And as you get up, it gets harder. The yeah. same thing when you go to the Henry's work. I can't remember how many people who fish waters in the east little streams and realize they had to make a forty foot cast. Yeah, it's a decent and that. Uh, and then fishing from a boat where you couldn't false cast. Right. You know, at the time you start false casting from a drifting boat, you're past where the fish rose. Oh, right. Yep. One shot. So, you know, uh, uh, and also if you really want to get into it, I always get these kids. I tell you, I could make a living doctors hiring me to convince your sons not to be a fly fishing guide <laughs> to go back to school. That's awesome. Yeah, I, it, uh, the pandemic kind of knocked that down. Yeah. But uh, uh, there isn't any better way to learn fly fishing than to be a guide. And another thing, go to a guiding school. If you're not guiding, you'll learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There, you mentioned um, you mentioned earlier your first book. Um, I, I kind of had a note here, obviously. One book I remember, I think when I was a kid, obviously, a long, a long time ago, um, was uh was your uh your your tying uh, you know your tying book i'm not sure what was your first book and can you talk about the, well, one with the, the face on right with the face on right on the that, cover? that was our first book which uh boy uh lee wolf just said it the right thing it says you gave it where you can see it in pictures pictures mean everything well now of course video and i was lucky to pioneer that but uh every book i'd seen had like five pictures and on the average fly, there was probably 20, anywhere from 12 to 20 steps. And so they'd just miss them. And I figured, well, why not do a book where you had every step? So, well, that's going to be really expensive. It used to cost $250 to put a black and white picture in a book. Hmm. And so it was really expensive to, to produce a book. Well, anyway, I went and I still had the letter. I went to Digest Books. At that time, was the number one book company for for doing paperback books we never envisioned it any more than a paperback and it ended up being 300 and something pages which was you know thickness it was more like a textbook hmm. and my banker who was a fly fisherman after i got turned down by them he says i don't know why you don't do it on your own i said what do you mean i had no money nothing he says well, i'll bankroll it and so we did it, and uh, it turned out to be the best-selling fly time book in history. Four hundred over four hundred thousand copies. What was the uh, title again? Uh, Jack Dennis Western Trout Fly Tying Manual. That's it. Yep, the fly tying manual. And who was who is that photo of the person the the, the close up on the cover? Uh, the close up's me. Oh, that is you. Oh, wow. That is you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did the Royal Humpy like when I was 20 years old. The Humpy was the big fly then. And uh, I had this guide friend of mine who was 50. He said, People can't see the Humpy. And he says, Is there any way you can put a white wing on it? And so, obviously, with the Royal Wolf, I incorporated, called it a Royal Humpy, and uh, yeah. uh, put it on the front of the book. Yeah. And uh, it became a pattern used worldwide. Uh, and then Randall Kaufman did a stimulator. All right. He called me up and says, can I copy your book? It won't be nearly as thick, and, and uh, uh, Amato Books is going to publish it. And I said, 
sure, Grandier, best friend, go ahead and, you know, do it. And it was American uh, nip tying manual. Yeah, I love that. And uh, he didn't make any money. <laughs> and I, I said, well, well, you know, I looked at it, too, and says, look, what? Make it a dollar a book? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. And so uh, what I did is said, Randall, here's what I did. And Randall did what I did, informed Western Fly Fisherman's Press, and started to roll out books, which I did several of the forewords. And then I advised him on the Bonefish book, which is the, the Bonefish book mm. in the world. He did a little paperback, and I, I, I threw it at him and said, come on. This isn't a book. It's a pamphlet. <laughs> Interview bone fishermen. Interview guides. They'll tell you how to fish. And he, he did it, and, and, and he did really well. He did something I didn't do. He went off seas. I, I was too loyal, and I had my books all done here in the oh, U.S. Right. I did a second one, uh, it, and I revised it. It was a volume two, which yep. brought flies in from around the world with my travels. Uh, and then I and it completely sold out uh, that I don't even have. I have one copy left. And there's so many out there. When you sell a couple hundred thousand books, there's used copies that oh, pretty yeah. much, you know, into that. And then I did one, which was my favorite. I, I hired a guy to steamroll a beautiful writer. He was from Wisconsin and that was uh time flies with Jack Dennis and friends. Yeah. And I ended the books there. Uh, I don't enjoy writing. I, it's not fun and you shouldn't do anything that isn't fun. Yeah. Uh, and then I started with a camera uh, in 67, filming 8 millimeter, and then learning from the American sportsman. And I built up a library, but there was no real market for it uh, except for lectures. So I started doing lectures, and I would have be the only one who would have movies. Everybody else had slides. And eventually... Uh, thanks to Gary Borger and 3M, they did a fly time tape. It was really well done, uh, but it was done in a way I thought if you were a left-hander, it was great because they shot it from the front. Yeah. But if you're the 70% of the country or more, I don't know what the percentage are right-handed. So, you know, you, you go to your audience, as you know, as a podcast so I devised a way to shoot from behind you. So you had the same view. And also 3M wouldn't pay me any money. Yeah. You know, I learned from the book business. And uh, so I proceeded to start uh, in 1986. Uh, I had a contract with the New Zealand government and I'd met some photographers and we did some filming because I wanted to do it during the spring. And obviously the middle of the winter, you're not going to get fishing pictures. It was a good excuse to go to New Zealand and work. <laughs> and so we, we did that. And then we followed up Mike Lawson. We did one with him. And then we did our classic, which is Caddisflies, which still sells. My God, the thing's almost 40 oh, years old. Oh, Caddisflies. Is that the one with uh, LaFontaine? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that, that's the We classic. formed Traveling Fly Fisherman. We did a, a DVD on that, and that still sells. Has uh, Gary's funeral and which one was that? Uh, the DVD you just mentioned. Tips from the traveling fly fisherman. 
Okay. And then we revised that to include Gary's funeral and his last words before he died. It's really a very poignant, poignant. Oh, wow. I'll, um, um, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So people can, yeah, it's on, uh, uh, Amazon. Uh, and I have, you can get it in, uh, I, I sell, uh, you can get 12 DVDs. There's no DVD market left. <laughs> you get 12 DVDs no. for bucks. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, it's you all know, streaming or uh, I do it because I want to educate people and it gives me a little spending money. My wife has me on a strict since you're retired. Don't retire. Get If you've been married for 50 years, they put you on a tight budget. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Sawyer offers a full line of modern and traditional products for oarsmen, canoeists, kayakers, surfers, and paddlers of all genres, providing unsurpassed function, performance, and beauty. They design and handcraft every product in the USA, ensuring everything they make is from the highest quality materials with careful attention to detail. They take pride in their employees, stewardship of the environment, and our country. In return, you have the assurance of knowing the product you receive from them is genuine, made in America, and cannot be replicated. I've been using Sawyer products for a long time now, which is why I'm definitely excited to share them with you on the podcast here. I've been down some crazy technical whitewater and mis- uh, mini fishing adventures that put me in places that were um, where I had to make a good move. And I, I love the design, the power, the performance, and always knowing that um, I can count on that stroke, even when you need to make you know that one to get past the rock or whatever. You can always count on Sawyer for that. And you can count on them as well. Sawyer products are designed by paddlers, oarsmen, and surfers alike to fully meet your performance needs. Pick up one today and experience the feel of water. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Sawyer to grab your set today. That's Sawyer, S-A-W-Y-E-R, wetflyswing.com slash Sawyer to get started. Hey, I, I want to, uh, I kind of interrupt you there. I wanted you to go back to that Gary LaFontaine, but before I just sure. want to note also that Gary Borger we had on, we had a great episode. He did a little bit of the history on nymph fishing and stuff. Um, and we talked a little bit about River Run Stewart, which I, we may not have time to dig into that today as well. I know you had a little bit of an impact getting that going as well. But um, yeah, finish that thought on um, on uh, Gary LaFontaine because obviously Caddis Flies is huge and he's, I've had a few people talk about, you know, the impact of him and, and on fishing. But um, yeah, talk about that at, the, at his funeral. Yeah, well, Gary and him were very similar, both named Gary and both were uh, professors or teachers. Gary taught a little bit, and then he became a clinical psychologist for prison families in Deer Lodge, Montana, wow. which is a pretty good place to live uh, if you have to do that job. And he took it pretty seriously, but the job was uh, where he could travel and do lectures, uh, intermit the job. And it was a 20-year job, and then they retired you. Very stressful. And so Gary and Gary did, Mike and Gary, we all weren't really that big on traveling alone. So we started to do sports shows together and, and uh, then we realized that the uh, intellect of Gary and his approach, which not necessarily matched uh, everybody's approach, but it really matched in very intelligent people. He he would say, well, 85% of the time this nymph would work doing it this way. And Mike would roll his eyes. And I I was always in the neutral thing. Yeah, sounds good to me, Gary. You know, I, that's just me. But the friendship grew and grew, and, and we helped Mike complete 
Spring Creek books. Yeah. And Gary on his deathbed told Mike, this was like about the, the 11th year of trying to write this book. You will finish the book, mm. and, which is brilliant. Yeah. And, he, and that really had an impact. Uh, Mike got to take him on, and, uh, on uh, his, his uh, home waters, the Henry's Fork. Uh, where he caught his last, last fish. Uh, I was with him when he got the diagnosis of M, of M, yeah. or of, uh, ALS. Oh, ALS. And we went through a lot of hard times. And in the, in the uh, DVD, we talk about even though he couldn't fish, he never lost his enthusiasm, and he continued to teach. But his way of looking at a misunderstood insect who had really just given, you know, kind of a, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, they're there. Yeah. And he made them into a more important insect. The biggest problem being is that the, the insect, once it emerges, it flies off. So you only have a very limited time you can catch them on the surface. And then they come back to lay their eggs. And so Gary looked at it under the water, since 90% of their time was under the water. Uh, that was part of it. And then he, he learned about the different ones. And I fished caddis in Australia with him and New Zealand, no matter where you were, caddis for caddis, they were everywhere, especially in Europe. Hmm. And so wow. Gary brought us to that point where we started looking at all insects differently. Gary Borger wrote about it. Gary did it more like if you were a student, you'd be fine. Yeah. Gary said, if you were a scientist, you'd be fine. And then we started taking it to the average guy and they got it. And, th and that's what video would do. A guy would sit down and watch a two hour video where he had a tough time uh, reading Caddisfly's book, which was uh, about three inches wide. <laughs> you know, Jack, this is uh, this conversation. I think about this, you know, that we're talking about a lot of writing. I've interviewed a lot of editors and, you know, I've had like John Gearock, lots of great writers on the show. Um, for me, I, I kind of struggle a little bit with writing. I, it sounds like maybe similar to you or you don't enjoy it. And I, I don't as well. I've always loved the audio, the video a lot more. I'm curious, um, you know, with you is, do you think if you would have wrote more that, you know, maybe you would have enjoyed it or is there, or, or do you feel good? I, I just like for my own experience, it seems like I feel good. If you could make a life at fly fishing without being a big writer, writing articles, then, then, you know, you can do it. Right. Well, first of all, you got to really look at it and understand. I tell everybody, you have to have another job. Yeah. There are very, very few people that can ever make a living to support a family from guiding uh, or tying flies or writing books. Gurak being the exception. Who has who has done it? Who who out there has done it just fly fishing over the years? Oh, um, well, there's been people make livings. Yeah. Gosh, Mike Miss back in the fly shop. I mean, livings, good livings. I made a good living. I, but I also had, uh, uh, I was paid to run our store. It was basically the name. And I hired people like Jeff Courier, who ran the shop for 27 years, the fly shop. And I had a general manager. I had the best and I gave him a job and it, and, 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 uh, it was their department, the shoe department, whatever. And the store made money. I went out and got publicity for it. And I got to, the, uh, the money for the speaking engagements and the, and the thing. And, and so when they added up, I did really well. Well, Lefty and I, 
compared. Lefty definitely made a good living. But he said, here we are making a living uh, about what a first-year lineman in the NFL, and they work three years, and they get that for the rest of their life. He says, uh, we yeah. really aren't that big a deal. No. And Arnold Palmer told me that when I gave him a, a lesson, we opened a golf course. He says, how much do you get? This is 1985, and they told him we got anywhere from $500 to $1,250 a day. He goes, what is the best in it? And I said, well, gosh, yeah. I, and he says, where do you rank? Oh, somewhere in the middle of the top 10 or something like that, you know. And as I know, we never really rated that. And he says, well, the top guy, uh, 500 to 1250. He looked at me and said, man, that's a really small field. He says, yeah. I get $50,000 to play around the golf and they fuel my jet. Yeah. And I got, you know, I think you have to keep it in, in, in content. Yeah. We meet a lot of famous people. We do a lot of that and uh, it's a good living. Have a fly shop. You're going to work your ass off. You're not going to get to fish as much as you think you are. And you better have teaching services. You better have guide services. You better be in an area where there's good fishing or you got to be special, but it's no more than a living. Now, if you look at Sage Rod is owned by the Green Foundation, uh, which own, owns the uh, Seattle uh, soup, uh, the Seattle Seahawks. Yep. Uh, Bill Ford of uh, Ford Motor Company owns Scott. Oh, wow. Uh, a wealthy kid from Florida owns Thomas and Thomas. They've had like five owners. In no kidding. Years. And uh, TFO is owned by a well-to-do Texan uh, who shares ownership with his employees. Uh, St. Croix was run by the same family, and that's still a family deal. Yeah. And, uh, and so is, uh, uh Orvis. Uh, yes, mm -hmm. but they, uh, you got to understand about Orvis. Uh, they came from Cleveland and the grandmother was the heir to the Cleveland, uh, porcelain foundry. <laughs> One of the, I think the third or fourth largest business in Ohio. Yeah. So when they walked in to Orvis, they had big time money behind them. Yeah. That's a whole story you could write a book, divorces, things. And by right. the way, this is one of the few companies that have done better than the people before them. Oh, right. The, the kids, the grandchildren of, of Lee Perkins have done a magnificent job running it. Yeah. I've, as I've did got, the sons, but they the ate sons. one kept doing better. I've got um, I've got Perk coming on soon on the podcast. I don't know the whole. I've had Tom Rosenbauer on. Don't but get I, into that. Don't get into that. No, don't get into divorces and stuff. No, like that. God, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, but, but he he has a house in Jackson, and they have property down in Afton. Yeah, I want to hear the story of more of just the Orvis kind of that. Not, not I don't want to hear about divorces. Yeah, 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 don't get in the. Uh, he's a very engaging personality. David was a real hard worker. You remember, I had the Jackson on one fly. When that thing started in 1986, we got everybody. Yeah. You know, it was a fishing field. And uh, David was on uh, uh, several good foundations. Uh, the kids were good kids. And, and we really did a great job with their kids. Yeah. You know, I have nothing but great respect for Orvis. Yeah, I know. Me too. Me too. I think they, 
I remember when I got started, I was kind of around some, you know, the local fly shop sort of thing back when I was young. And I remember Orvis was always the company we, we used. Um, I didn't know the story, you know, about them, and it's a good one. But, um, hey, I wanted to get back, Jack, just on that um, writing again because it's interesting to me because, like I said, I struggled with it. Uh, for you, you've written a couple books, right, but you don't enjoy it. Do you think uh, – what's your take on writing? So it sounds like for you, um, you know, it wasn't important for you to make a – kind of get to where you got. What, what would you tell somebody that's trying to, kind of, again, make a – maybe make a side business in fly fishing? Do they have to – is it helpful to be a writer? Well, first thing is don't – do not leave your day job. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ernie Schwebert, who's well known, was an architect. Uh, did the Dallas Fort Worth Airport in the U.S. Oh, Naval wow. Air Academy. Yeah, he was set. Uh, Dave Whitlock was an artist for uh, Philip yep. sixty six in Oklahoma. Most of these people, Swisher was. The chemical engineer, Burger professor. Yep. All these guys had Mike Lawson ran the shop, sold it to Rockefeller. That's right. And then you've got, you know, you've got, I had the store. That was my second job. And so, you know, you got to be realistic. In the old days, the Bud Lilies and, 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 uh, well, a lot of people don't realize that Dan Bailey was a nuclear engineer on no the kidding. Manhattan Project. And he got so whacked out after it was done, he headed out west and just drove, and his car broke down to Livingston, and that's where he did his fly shop. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, it, it, my advice to the young person is fly fishing, since river runs through it, and since all this, will be oversaturated. There'll be way too many of everything. And the easiest way I tell them is what I just told you, 500 a day is the going fee today, yeah. 2021. Yep. In 1990, I was getting 750. Really? Yeah. You tell me where this thing's going. So wow. would you, if you had money, would you invest in, in, in that? Huh. No, that's amazing. So in 30, I mean, yeah, basically in 30 years, the guide, the rate they're getting is essentially the same. Not the guide. Oh. The speaker. Those oh, the speaker. speaker. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, the speaker. But the guiding isn't any different. Yeah. Well, actually it was. It was about 200 then. Uh, the guiding now is about 600 a yeah, day. Yeah, it's a little more. 500, right. 600 a day. And it's going to stay right at that because there's plenty of guides. You get a guiding shortage. But see, most of the guiding is controlled by the government. People don't realize that. If you didn't have the Forest Service and the National Park System uh, and the BLM, yeah. they control about 80% of the guiding uh, in the United States. That's right. So you're not going to get over-guided because they have limits on it. And places that don't have those regulations are just beat to a frazzle. And then, of course, now you have a lot of people with boats, which is great. If you know how to use them, know the etiquette, I mean, you know, you're not going to ever, unless you go, uh, if you live in Boise or you live in a place where the river's right, you know, Jackson Hole, places where the river, you know, Moffin, Oregon, where you yep. can just throw a boat in the river. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're going to maybe fish enough to get good at it. But you, you also got to watch, uh, never get above your level in competence. 
Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. No, this is this is good. I I think, like I said, Jack, I, I knew that we were gonna uh, struggle to get you know <laughs> to get to some of the. I was thinking, you know, nipping, uh, dry fly fishing. You know, just more on the the actual fishing. Do you do? I don't, I'm not even sure if you do. You do more, you know, over your career more nipping or dry fly fishing. You kind of did it, do it all. Well, I kind of did it all because I did the TV shows. So you got to realize that after. Uh, in about 1986, the one fly started, and that was an idea to promote uh, catch and release. We had 17 teams, and right off within an hour, my my wife was the ER nurse that uh, started out in 1973 before there were even ER doctors. And one of my friends who volunteered to guide him, because I said, "Look, we're going to pay guides. I'm not going to have I don't volunteers. No offense, I love volunteers." But if somebody's paid to do a job, they do the job. Yep. And it's better to pay somebody if they don't do the job. If you're a volunteer, I never forget when my friend says, hey, go tell Joe to do, it, to do this. And I said, why don't you? He says, well, we're big buddies and we play cards together. <laughs> no, I, you know, I can't, you know. So anyway, one of the guys volunteered. He was a California boy, guided, end up a uh, quirk little deal where the boat got away from him, and he ran down the bank. The bank caved in. He fell in the water, broke his neck, and drowned. And that was the first two hours of the one fly. Hmm. I was there when the helicopter pulled his body out. My wife, of course, pronounced him, and the, and the doctor pronounced him dead. So that's how the one fly started. It, it evolved over a 35-year anniversary coming up. It evolved over putting the, the, the guys, two kids through college and all have wonderful careers. And then it evolved into making money for streaming projects. And we just got through putting about th- a little, little over $300,000 into stream projects. Even though we didn't have a one fly last year, our vir- virtual auction made the kind of money that we needed to keep going. And we keep reserves, the Definitely paid all the guides, by the way, huh. too. Yep. Every guy got paid for last year. And uh, this was, you know, so let, let's cool. get down to a career in fly fishing. And career in fly fishing is keeping that job and taking the time. If you enjoy guiding, instead of going fishing, you guide. And, and you get your fishing through the guiding. Uh, I had, uh, uh, it's very interesting when you have an illness how it can change your life. Gary's, of course, was changed with ALS, but I got a Wuhan virus in 2012. A friend of mine was running a factory to saltwater flies in Wuhan, and we were doing the New Mexico conclave. It was getting in about the end to where I was quitting doing lectures. It was just getting tough and not making any money like you used to. We met, he hugged, gave me a virus from Wuhan. I ended up two weeks in the hospital, $300,000 later, uh, heart condition, all the stuff that happened with COVID, all the, I lost a sense of smell, which I never got back, but I didn't lose my sense of taste. Uh, AFib, a life of now eloquist, and it came back three years ago. And then, so when I see this, thing happening it wasn't the same virus yeah but it had the same effects so i do it so i said you know what this is a time so i started uh, my doctor 
a wonderful doctor who's the one that diagnosed it finally after and they still don't know what the virus was but huh. he said i were told me i was going to have to have a heart transplant and bottom line is the heart shrank back down and to just quickly say i thought what could i do and he says you know you need exercise you can guide me so i went back to guiding and i did it for foundations to make them money and uh uh i did that for 10 years hmm. and i did i put the money uh into Project Healing Waters, uh, Henry Fork Foundation, uh, Utah Trout, Colorado Trout Unlimited, uh, and uh, I got a little extra money out of it, but they made money, you know, kind of what retail was all about. And uh, I got to fish through all the people. And I and the nice thing is I could pick. I didn't. I knew who was coming. I knew their strengths, and I made them better. It was like. Coaching an NBA team, it was it was wonderful, and I went fishing with Randall Kopp, and that was the only people we went over. We were the last people. <laughs> we get these wonderful distinctions. We were the Randall and Mike Stidham, who uh, and a friend of mine, Tom Doxey. We fished Monster Lake the day that uh, Kanye West bought it in Cody, Wyoming, and we were the last people to fish that lake commercially. Kanye took it over, and then with the pandemic, it was laid dormant. Okay. Unbelievable place. If it ever opens back up, I hear Kanye's getting divorced. Who the hell knows what's going to happen? But if you get a chance, you go to Monster Lake, because it is a great place to get a trophy tiger trout. Oh, right, right. And on dry flies. Yeah. Now, getting back to dry flies. Yeah. On that 10 years, I floated the New Fork and Green River out of Pinedale. I'd rent a condo every year and go there. Last year, my grandson helped me drive in the car uh, vehicles. And I found that I used 90% dry flies. Didn't huh. use a streamer at all. The young kids throw streamers because they're a very aggressive brown trout. Yeah. Uh, I just, from a guiding standpoint... It was much more fun to, to catch fish on the surface. Uh, this is probably the toughest river in America. Henry, uh, Mike Lawson will tell you. Uh, all his guides come over. There are a whole bunch of guides that come and fish it because it's it, the technically hmm. really difficult. This is the green? The New Fork. Oh, New Fork. New Fork is another part of the green. Yeah. New Fork is brushy and small. You have to fish it from a boat sitting down. Uh, incredible guide skill. Most people, once the low, the high water goes, they go. And the low water, you, you know, I, I could draw you a map. I started fishing it in 1962, and I've never missed a year. Oh, wow. So I pretty much know it. Huh. I was able to secure three and a half miles of, of public fishing with a relationship with the fly fishing governor. That's fly fishing politics. And it's where my heart and soul lives. And I didn't fish but a couple times a year. I fish more than anybody should. I got paid to fish on TV programs in yep. New Zealand, you know, in Australia and Argentina and Chile and Africa. You know, couriers live in the, what I already did. 
Yeah. <laughs> but he's going to go to places I wouldn't go. He's got I a few, get. he's got a few, probably a few more species under his belt, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, Hey, he deserves all of it. He's a very bright, great, great artist. He, uh, uh, there's nothing. He is the epitome of a person that doesn't have kids. Yeah. And devoted a life. He's a very smart businessman. And yeah. he's devoted a life. He kept his day job to build up his career. When I sold out of the store, he left. Yep. And did all but Scott Sanchez, who now runs the store. A, a company from Chicago bought it, a group of guys, all really good guys, and they own it now. And Scott runs it. But the rest of them all went out. You know, it was really the thing is everybody went different places. Some went to Umqua. Some uh, uh, ran one, one of them ran uh, uh, a company for Columbia. They all went in great directions and all ended up with really good jobs. Yeah. And so I, I feel good about that. Yeah. But yeah, as to fishing, I do like the dry fly now. I'm 74. We'll be 74 in September. And I plan on doing a lot of fishing here in North Carolina. And I like all kinds of fishing. But, you know, there's something special about the dry fly, if you can do it. If you're going to sit and look at a dry fly all day long, you, you may definitely. And I love using nymphs underneath the dry. But to match the hatch, not as a searching thing. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. TurtleBox is the loudest, truly portable, waterproof Bluetooth speaker available. Perfect for a skiff, drift boat, or your craft of choice. The guys at TurtleBox believe in respecting the peace and beauty while on the water, but listening to great tunes before or after can be amazing. I remember our last big river trip this summer, and it was cool to break out the Bluetooth speaker as we listened to some classic music and tried to play along with our guitars. Without a Bluetooth speaker, we would have missed a bunch of amazing opportunities and some good laughs. The features I love most on this one are the quality bulletproof frame, easy to push and lighted buttons, and uh, at home you can add another speaker for uh, stereo. To be honest, I've been using uh, this speaker quite a bit around the home and the dance party with the kids has been great. Find out why TurtleBox is our go-to speaker and why it is great for the river as well. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash TurtleBox to support a great company, this podcast, and some tunes. And now, back to our show. Jack, as we start to kind of wrap this thing up out of here, um, just wanted to touch, I had one note here. You know, obviously the river runs through it. Uh, You know, Gary Borger, we talked a little bit about that. I've had um, a few people that have been connected to it, but um, I know you were there early on and stuff like that, but I really want to just touch on Norman McLean because he obviously Mm -hmm. wrote the book. And did you, and you knew Norman, can you talk a little about about him and maybe, you know, your take on, you know, what what type of person he was like? Yeah, well, the, my first uh, uh, encounter with Norman, I was a, when I was 32, I was appointed to a travel commission that was made up of state, federal, and, and uh, businessmen for five states. And one of the uh, representatives from Montana who ran the, the Montana Fishing Game was a woman from Helena. And we happened to have, we always would move to different places to have uh, uh, our meetings and we were doing it in Helena and he says, look, I got a guy that just wrote a book that has a, a fishing story. And I'd like, uh, would you like to have dinner with him that night? And I said, sure. And it was Norman McLean. And he handed me this, uh, book. It was hardbound book. He said, there's three, three stories or four stories in it. And he said, oh, it's only a four hour read. I'd like to get your opinion about it. 
And so I said, sure. You know, I, it was a weekend meeting. We actually had three days and then we left. And, and so I said, look, I'll read it. And he says, let's plan on breakfast on Monday. Uh, that was a Friday night. And I read it and I, oh my God. Yeah. So we had the breakfast, Norman and, uh, uh, of all things, the gal's name was Norma. So, you, you know, it was all that problem. Like, uh, Norman, oh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> and he sat there, uh, legs crossed, you know, white hair. Yeah. And he says, okay, tell me about the book. And he was glaring at me. And I said, it's the greatest fly fishing story ever told. Wow. And I, I handed the book back. I mean, he didn't give it to me. And he picks up the book and throws it at me, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and Norma was going, Norman, now come on. Yeah, and yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? And Nor Norma looked at me and, 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 and said, Norman, tell him what he's supposed to get. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Yep. How did I get this to those people to understand this? And I said, well, Norman, you shouldn't have wrote so many beautiful lines. And then we talked about my grandfather always said fly fishing was a religion. And he always said that uh, Christ the disciples were fly fishermen. He didn't say anything else until uh, I read Paul saying, you know, I mean, uh, Norman saying Paul was a dry fly fisherman, Christ's favorite. And, yeah, yeah being Catholic, I knew that right off the bat. And then, we, you know, it was kind of interesting. He settled back down and he said, look, when's your plane? I said, five o'clock. He said, we're going to go drive around. And I don't even remember what the vehicle was, but it was nothing fancy. You know, what you'd expect somebody living like a hermit in the mountains would have. And he drove around and we talked and got to see the river and explained to me the book. And I said, you know, Norman, you ought to get a movie made out of this. He said, I don't want to damn, we can't really say his language. Uh, he was cantankerous. Yeah. Uh, but so when I went back, he took me to the airport and, and, and uh, he says, can I call you? I'd love talking to you. And so we kind of had conversations when I'd go up I, that time I had a contract with Dan Bailey to help them in their fly operation. And it was very lucrative. And, and, and I, Dan Bailey had actually sold me the first tackle for my fly shop and financed it for me. So I had a deep love for Dan Bailey. And so I'd go up there and then I'd, I'd come back and Norman loved Dan Bailey. It was his hero. Hmm. And he just couldn't figure a way of getting Dan Bailey in the story because Dan Bailey wasn't then yet. There, there. He didn't come until the, yeah. to the late, I think early forties. Hmm. And he, he said, let's keep in touch. And so I, you know, I just had a loose, and I don't know how many people really had a close friendship. I know at that particular time, he was kind of estranged. His wife had died and he was always blaming the wife and died and the kids don't understand. And, and I have a feeling that uh, kids have a tough time understanding their, their parents, especially when they're dynamic hmm. and they're in, and, and they're good at something and they go off in a different direction 
there's no way I would want anybody to do what I did in my family. I worked so darn hard, and they all did things that were helpful to mankind. And uh, uh, so, Norman, I end up making uh, meeting another influential part of my life, and that was uh, uh, Dr. Close, Bill Close. Now, that wouldn't mean anything to you, but he was the man who discovered the Ebola virus, medical doctor from Connecticut. And he got involved with the overthrow of the, of the Belgian Congo, the real quite a story in itself, and then came back to the U.S. and decided to locate in Big Piney, Wyoming. And they had money. His wife came from a good family, and Bill became just a, a country practitioner. And my wife, being the ER nurse, would and we ended up becoming friends. And I would take him fishing, and we'd go fishing. And this year, I went over to the pool. This one pool we call it the Gowdy Pool because Kurt Gowdy always loved to fish it. And in 1982, he told me about what happened this last year, what was going to happen, the pandemic affect everybody on earth, but he said it would come from a jungle, not from China. This is 1982. So anyway, at that time, I started telling him about the river runs through it. So he got the book. He loved it. He called his daughter, who happened to be Glenn Close, the actress, hmm. and she and William Hurt, who had my book, who tied flies when he did a, a show on Broadway, I arranged for them to go up and meet Norman. And they went out, and Glenn is just a magnificent personality. Bill's kind of laid back, very, you'd think of him as the ultimate college professor. And he was, he says, look, I'll do it, but I have to be dad. So I can, and then he says, by the way, do you, do you guys have, there's a warden coming, do you have a license? They didn't get a license, and the <laughs> warden cited them. Oh, wow. Norm, that was the end of that. So, you know, we kind of kept on. I lost kind of track of Norman. And I had been involved in getting a film commission in Wyoming that brought in movies and the travel commission. Remember, Wyoming's only 570,000 people. Yeah. If you're in any kind of business, you know the governors, you know the people. I've known all of them. It, and fly fishing, I mean, there's not that many well-known fly fishermen at that time from Jackson. Uh, I mean, from uh, Wyoming. Uh, Gowdy and me. All right. So you got to know, and he, and I did things for the travel commission uh, and all that. So we worked, and I brought some, because of my Hollywood friends, some movies to Jackson, which were really good uh, to, for the state. So the state had sent Redford's people to come talk to me. Jackson has all the facilities. Uh, uh, Robert Redford lives in Park City. He felt comfortable mm -hmm. with Jackson. And I said, it's not, you know, no, this is not the story. The story's Montana. And he said, well, would you be involved as a consultant? I said, man, I'm consulting New Zealand. I'm doing mm -hmm. sports shows. I'm running a business. No. Yep. I know how movies are done. They were done in Jackson. It, it's a long commitment. And I said, but I'll tell you how to make this work. You call John Bailey, and you have Redford go talk to him. And that was the secret of why it got done the way it was done. 
Mm-hmm. You ask Gary Borger, Cass, Jerry Seam did. Mo, an, another guy you wouldn't maybe know who is, he's did all the shadow casting in spite of what anybody told you. Oh. He was the chief rod designer for Sage. Lived in Twin Bridges, Montana. He knew the story and fished the rivers. But there were other guys that, you know, it takes so much to do a movie. If you want to be bored out of your mind, <laughs> go to a movie set. It'll take all day to get maybe one minute of film. Right. It's it's the most boring yeah, thing you'd yeah. ever do. That's pretty amazing. I mean, Jackie, I mean, basically you turned down the the greatest fly fishing movie of all time, right? The, the, yeah. not, not turned it down, but you. Well, I got, a, you know, I got a. Uh, invitation and they yeah. called me and and uh you know i don't remember back then i recommended a lot of things i recommended a mechanical trout and, oh yeah yeah uh, you know I, I i recommended things and you know helped them out a little but once they got borger and he's a smart guy and they got deeps who was a young guy young guys are good you want young guys because they see things a little different than older guys and redford was oh gosh he had to be in his uh late 60s oh wow that, he was you know, well, no, no, maybe his early 60s. Yeah. And there wasn't a role for him. No. And John actually talked him into being the narrator. Oh, right. And Norman and, uh, and, and, you know, and uh, it just wouldn't fit. Norman yeah. was young and, and the guy really looked like a young Norman. And then, of course, Brad Pitt played the the other one. And I got to know the preacher. The guy was on Top Gun. He was in the One Fly. Oh, yeah. Tom Brokaw and him in the One Fly for our 20, 25th anniversary. And yeah. he was a beautiful fly fisherman. He was on the American Rivers board. Just Oh, cool. Yeah, and he, he was a steelhead fisherman. And so he had like, wow. So he didn't have any problem with talking about fishing, which no. was pretty cool. They they got him not knowing that he was a fly fisherman. And of course, Redford's a big fly fisherman. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. For any of the youngsters listening now, I mean, obviously, it's uh, I mean, it it's powerful, like we said, because of the family thing. I mean, I think most people have had some family issues. I've had some family issues around alcohol and oh boy, you know what I mean, like the impact. Yeah, that is a common problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I've seen. I've had the same thing. I mean, I have a brother. I've got a few brothers, but I had one that, I mean, literally almost died, you know. And so you feel it, man, because you, you it comes down and you're like, you want to step in and be like, okay, I'm taking over this situation. But you can't. At a certain point, it's their lives. And Well, let me tell you a story. I met a guy named Dave who was a drummer for Whaling Jennings when he was 19. Oh, nice. And... He got Waylon Jennings' daughter pregnant, and Waylon booted him out of the band. Jeez. Never married her, but they had the boy, and he went off and became a veterinarian uh, for, and, and raised guard dogs, which meant he was selling them to the cartel. Oh, wow. Got himself wow. in alcohol, drug problems, went to as low as you can where the FBI has you. And it was the lowest form you could ever go. Turned around, got off, got the sponsor, uh, end, ended up becoming uh, wealthy. He had given his money. He'd, he'd married a second time a real wealthy gal, 
didn't take any of her money, but gave her brother-in-law a little bit of money he had, and he ended up having enough to live the rest of his life. He dedicated his life in Park City to helping uh, people with drug, uh, drug and alcohol problems. Fabulous guy. Musician, beautiful flycaster. Uh, he had now just bought a place in Hamilton on, uh, 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 on the Bitterroot River. He said, and I was dealing with three close friends, one a physician who had been arrested for reckless driving with a minor, the most respected doctor. And I was to the sign of thought, how can I do this? And he said, you don't. you got to go to the lowest form where you're nothing else left. You either die or you decide to change your life. Nobody can do it for you. You have to do it. And I've finally been able to be comfortable to realize that some of my friends, like, uh, and I'll give you a prime example, is uh, Robert Traver. Oh, yeah. John Volker was a terrible alcoholic. He was head of the, he, he rose the head of the Supreme Court. He wrote Anatomy of a Murder. And I asked him, uh, how does it feel to have Jimmy Stewart play you? Here's his answer. Jeremy Stewart played me better than I played me. <laughs> That's the I great... was a hopeless drunk, ran my friends off, and now I'm going to die alone. Wow. We went into the bookstore to Barnes and Noble, talk about losing where you're known. So I've, I've been around people that were hugely famous and then they weren't. And it's hard to get a grip on that. He went in Barnes and Noble and he wanted to give me a book. And he said, do you have anatomy of murder? No, no, don't know that. No, don't have it. Oh, what do you have from me? He says, who are you? Oh, my author name is Robert Traver. Oh yeah, we got one paperback book. So he bought that and signed it. And, it, you know, you see, three months later, he died. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, so I've had a few of these come yeah. to Jesus moments yeah, on, you, uh, you know, watching people. For you, I'm not sure what your vice, do you, do you have any vices? I mean, I'm not sure. Oh, what, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's your, what's your, what's the vice that you, you has been well, the tough I vice for you? Uh, I had a disease called sarcoid, and then I had the heart thing, so... Alcohol doesn't sleep well for that. Oh, yeah. But uh, I, I would say the vice is, is I can't stop talking. Yeah, you're good at, you're good at and, talking. And, and I can't hear. Uh, oh. But my vice is just not paying attention. And uh, my vice is also is, as uh, I've been married, I'll be 50 years, but I have to say I really like uh, women. <laughs> like talk to them and, and, uh, uh, and I eat too much, yeah. but I'm not fat, They're but I, fat. I get criticized for that. Uh, I have a lot of, uh, I don't false cast very much. If at all, this is drying a fly. Uh, I like to drive on long 12 hour drives just to see if I can do it. Yeah. I got a lot of vices. Uh, uh, but it doesn't, never got into uh, drugs, but there was a period where I could see uh, having operations, how you could get addicted to oxycodone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. I never, ever had more than one, and that was just enough. 
You know who I just heard? This is kind of crazy. I, I'm a po- I love podcasting. I li- listen to tons. I was just listening to Mark Marin, and you know who he had on was um, was uh, Hunter Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hunter Biden. I mean, I I mean, we don't talk politics on here, but man, what a story! I mean, the guy, literally, the president's son is totally addicted to a crack, right? I mean, it's a it's amazing to think that. Wow, how do you as as Biden's son become a crack? addict but he tells the story and it's really a a powerful story the fact that just drugs and alcohol man i mean a lot of people get caught up in that right i mean it's it's a hard thing but once you get in it to get out of it what what the problem happens is they can't deal with life the way it is yeah and they've learned to deal with it when they're in the alcohol stage i have known people that you would know that all their whole life went from being alcoholics all the way to the time they die, yet they functioned as doctors, as writers, oh, wow. as whatever. Yeah. And uh, I, I never could quite understand the functioning alcoholic. But then you say, okay, you have asthma, you have to, to, to breathe the stuff, you have terminal diseases, you take drugs. Uh, we, yeah. we can't be, I think you still have to look at what the person accomplished. Like, what did the end deal? I know some brilliant people. Look at the writings. Wow. I mean, it's so easy. I'll tell you, anybody's never had oxycodone. And if you have one of those, I mean, you literally feel like the world can dish anything out to you. Is it essentially cocaine, or right? Or is it? I have no idea. Yeah, I think it's like an opiate. I think it's similar to opiate. It's an opiate. But yeah. the thing is, uh, you know, some people took like 20 of them, you know, the guy that died that, uh, from Missouri, you know, the, what's his name? Trump gave him the medal of honor. He was. The oh, right. Political. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, he he was opposite. At one point he was buying 20 a day. Wow. And so, I mean, he had to start with one and two. I never, ever took, but I'd use a half of one. I had a, a broken neck when I was an 18 and about oh, my late forties, it started really bothering me. I thought that I was going to have surgery. Oh, no, just take one of these boy. I'll tell you, uh, you know, I had a permit prescription and I'd get like 50 for a whole year and I'd take a half of one and I needed it. And then I would keep them for emergencies. And I remember, and this lady got man- malaria. We're doing shows in Argentina and Chile and she was desperate. And I gave her those and several people that got hurt. I had them with me. And then of course, the more you learned it, the doctor and I said, these are too dangerous. He says, yeah, we've known now you're off of them, you know, but you know, using anything responsible, it's sort of, I used responsible like alcohol, but I could see, Oh yeah. I could see how really easy. Uh, and I'm allergic to, uh, I have allergies and I'm allergic to marijuana. So oh, wow. I can't yeah. use, but I have to say, I do like margaritas yeah. when they <laughs> let me have one. Well, well, I'll tell you, I think, I feel like our bodies let us know, you know what I mean? Sometimes, I mean, some people die, well, a lot of people can die from it, but like your, it sounds like your body kind of let you know, right? You've got, been through some stuff and it's, you know, like marijuana, right? Yeah. I think your body probably Well, just I like- had sarcoid, which is a disease I was told when I was 20, 31 that I had six months, four months to live, diagnosed with uh, 
with a type of cancer, and it turned out to be a lymphatic disease, which went rampant through Jackson Hole, uh, called sarcoid, board sarcoidosis. They still don't know what causes it, but it attacks your lymph system. So it took 25 years before I got to a normal liver test. So that cut down the drinking. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I wasn't allowed it. I mean, you just know. I mean, you'd have one drink and you couldn't drive. Yeah. So, oh, uh, right, right, so right. I, I, I was lucky. And, 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 you know, all this, what I want to say is the best thing that could happen, what made my life worthwhile was the, I remember my daughter, we were taking her back to school. She's the one, the doctor at Shriners Hospital in oh, Salt nice. And she, uh, we were walking, uh, to go on a flight somewhere we, I, I, back east to, to go back to school. And she said, Dad, you know, what you do is really not that important, is it? And I said, no, no. And he says, but it's you're well-known. He said, why don't we live in a, I mean, we live in a wonderful house, but he said, why don't we have a mansion and all this stuff? I said, well, was, you're on television. Like, uh, I only get like 500 a day, 1,500 a day on television. Yeah. And uh, no receptual, just 1,500 a day. Oh, and then all of a sudden, the guy stopped me. He said, you're Jack Dennis, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He says, your videos have helped me through the toughest time of my life, a divorce with my family. Yeah. And your videos kept me going. And and my relationship with my kids are through fishing. I just want to thank you. Yeah. And she says, I get it, Dad. That's it. No, I think you hit it the nail on the head. That's we got we talked a little bit about the money, you know, the fact that there's there's not a billion dollar company in fly fishing, but that's why we all do it. We all do it because we we know that, you know, the impact not only on us but on other people from, you know, and you've done a lot of it. Well, hey, I want to let I want to take us out of here really quick just with the I want to get it back to sports because, you know, yeah, obviously sure. we didn't cover hard. Well, I had, I had the sports are oof, Yeah. <laughs> That's Kenny right. No, another Dixon. The guy's name invented the jump. Oh, shot. yeah. What, what what was his name? Kenny Sailors. Oh, ten, his Kenny Sailors. Brother was Bud Sailors. He had a dude ranch in Jackson. He was a uh, he went to Alaska. Uh, he died at 90. By the way, I've had my father died at 90. My grandmother, 105. The other one, 100. Uh, that's why I've been able to get through all. I've got good genes. That's right. And how old are you? How old are you now, Jack? I'm 74. I'll be 74 and Yeah, 50. yeah. So you're still a young buck. That's right. You're, you know, I've interviewed I've interviewed a few people, definitely. I mean, uh, Frank Moore was, I think, 95. I interviewed yep. uh, Joe Humphreys, who's, I think, in it. I mean, those people, I'll tell you what. They don't sound like they're ninety. They sound like they're you know much younger. So I think I think there's another thing in fly fishing, right? It maybe keeps. Let you me younger. tell you a Joe Humphrey story. I've yeah. known Joe since I was fourteen years old. His college roommate, uh, Charlie Ridenhauer, uh, they went to the Olympics together, and they were both coaches in wrestling at Penn State. He came out to Jackson and started working with me as a guide, and. He brought out Charlie, and we fished when I was 14 years old, dry fly fished the Grovant River for one. At that time, we had rainbows and cutthroats in it. So I'm in Denver, and I always see Charlie. One time he called me. I was in the Boersburg End looking at his house, and he was in the store calling me. And my son was at Penn State. My son got oh, yeah. a PhD from Penn State. Jeez. But it, anyway, uh, 
Joe, we're sitting there, and he always had his martinis, and you know, and and <laughs> uh, he was all by himself. And I, I'd just come off the show, and I said, "Joe, yeah, sit down, Jack." And I said, "You know." So we started to talk, and I had a dinner date, like you always do. You want to get as far away from those shows as you can. And he says, "Do you remember when we were casting to that rainbow under the tree?" He says, "That was so wonderful, Charlie. You and I." Excuse me, Joe. Uh, he's he's over ninety. Yeah, I mean over eighty then. Oh, yeah. he's was ninety now. I mean, this was probably five years ago. And no, and I thought he says, you know, I got some of those pictures. Like, how the hell Sorry. does he remember that? That's awesome. Is it true? I gotta I gotta ask this because I think I had George Daniel mention this, but does have you ever seen him smack around any of his uh, his students in fly fishing? <laughs> you ever heard that story? Who, who are you talking about? Oh, Bob uh, uh, no, no, no. So yeah, right. Bob Knight would be a good one. No, I heard uh, uh, George. Uh, George. I think jo- uh, George Daniel mentioned that. I, I think he was joking, but he said that you know. George. Jo- I, no, I coached George on the U.S. fly fishing. Oh team. yeah, so gosh. He, he still calls me coach. That's right. Even in even in his twi- Twitter uh, emails to me. Uh, a great story about George, the world fly fishing champion. Guy had won it seven times. We're in Portugal, and George is fishing. And we're on, on a bridge, and he come up, and I know him. He speaks one of the few French that actually speaks pretty good English. He says, that's George Daniel, isn't it? And this is his first time on the team. He says, I want to tell you something. That's the best fly fisherman I have ever seen. Yep. Period. I mean, you don't get any better. This guy is the most famous fly fisherman in Europe. Yeah. And the French don't give those compliments out very easily. They had, they had won more national world championships than any other country. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we've had. Uh, right. Now, okay. And I asked me about George, what you were going to ask. No, me. no. I think I'm going to take I'm, I'm going to leave that for the next one because, uh, George, we could go on a whole other th- thing on George. He's obviously a great a great guy and everything. I, so, I did just want to take us out of George, here. On, which George are you talking about? Oh, oh, I was talking about, um, I was talking about George Daniel. Uh yeah. I was, oh, okay. I was talking about George Daniel because we had the uh, and because I think he mentioned that Joe Humphreys used to smack him around when he wasn't fly was he when he wasn't doing what he needed to be doing fly fishing. Have you ever been around? Uh, have you watched Jim Jordan perform? No. In the Congress? No. Well, you need to do that. Okay. But he's a wrestling coach at Iowa or Ohio, and he's in the Congress. And you talk about smacking around. Wrestling coaches are notorious. That's it. <laughs> so I, uh, if George said it, probably happened. Hey, I appreciate your time. Um, just before I get you out, one last one. Basketball, uh, baseball, uh, golf, you got these sports. You were a pro in, in fly fishing, but if you if you could have gone pro in one of those other sports, what, what would you have gone for? Oh, absolutely. It would have been basketball. What position? Uh, well, guard. I was 5'7". I played in high school. I got to... I played on a baseball scholarship because I was around Major League Baseball in college, and then I played for the Army. But I was not good enough. I could have maybe made uh, rookie league, maybe yeah. a. I don't know. I, I just couldn't hit well enough. Yeah. But it was enough to get to two in the Army. Play on the Army team at Fort Orr. That was good enough. That's it. But no, it absolutely, okay. absolutely be basketball. Love I love, crave it. I'm 73. I still play. Yeah. I play. 
Every once in a while, I'll block a kid's shot, and I'll say, how does it feel to have a 70-year-old block your shot? That's right. So, yeah, I, I, I just love everything about basketball. I like, I was always a point guard, which meant you control the, the yeah. action. And, and you know, being around uh, and spent a lot of time with Danny Crum and Bobby, uh, you know, it, it equates a lot to fishing. And you know who was one of the absolute best was the uh, John Havelcheck. Oh yeah, who was one of the best fly fishermen I, I've right. ever known. That's right. And I asked him this question, and we'll end it on this. I said, "Why did you quit at forty-one? Well, he's forty-one, forty-two, because he had the exact same scoring average as he did when he started." He says, "Well, Jack, I'll tell you." And by the way, he died about three or four months ago, and he said. You know, I'd get done with the basketball game, and I'd go in and turn the 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 uh, bathtub on the highest it would go, and I would get in the bathtub and for at least an hour before I could even walk. That's when I knew it was time to quit. Hey, I just want to thank you again uh, for coming on the show, Jack. First class production, by the way. Oh yeah, uh, you can tell tell anybody. Jack Dennis recommends Dave Stewart. Hey, hey, I appreciate. It. I, you know what? You are I, a delight to be with. You know what I love about this podcast thing is that I found the one thing that I really love as much as fly fishing is actually talking to people and doing the podcasting. So I think that's my superpower is the fact that I enjoy it a lot. So I appreciate your uh, feedback there, and uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you and, uh, and following everything else you got coming here. All right, my friend. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes and all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 217. Uh, please head over to uh, wetflyswing.com slash live. Uh, that's uh, the best place if you want to check out our new live uh, podcast where you can raise your hand, come up on stage, and ask a question to a, a guest that we have on. So check it out. You can see when we have the next one scheduled there. That'd be awesome. Quick heads up to our next uh, episode on Tuesday. Our next big Tuesday episode is with uh, Al Q. Al Q is here to break down some striper fishing with the focus on California waters. That's pretty much it. That's a wrap. Uh, this has been awesome. I really enjoyed this one with Jack. Been wanting to get him on for a while. And uh, so just kept my eye on it and, and finally made a connection. So hope you enjoyed it today. Hope you uh, loved it as much as I did. And uh, hope to maybe catch you uh, soon. Maybe see you online or maybe catch you on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.